Well, we're in John 19, 1 through 16. Before we go to John 19, I want to read two passages this morning to start our time. We'll begin by reading Isaiah 52, 13, all the way to Isaiah 53, verse 12. Every Sabbath in every Jewish synagogue throughout the world, they go through a portion of the Old Testament. Every meeting, every Sabbath service, they read a portion of the Old Testament. And in one year, they read every passage, Genesis, all the way to Malachi. But they skip one portion of Scripture. They deliberately, purposely cut out one section of the Scriptures because it points so specifically to Jesus fulfilling this Messianic prophecy. And the portion of scripture that they skip is Isaiah 52, verse 13, to the close of chapter 53. Uh, We want to read this chapter together this morning because we see so much of it fulfilled in John 19. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and asked for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him He has put him to grief, with his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Arabic Gabbatha. Now it was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Today commemorates, today is Palm Sunday, commemorates um, the entrance of our Lord, seated on a donkey into Jerusalem where crowds of people gathered en masse, put palm branches in His way, and cried out to Him, Hosanna, Hosanna, Son of God, Hail, King of Israel. Hosanna is Hebrew for save us now, save us now. They honored Him, revered Him, praised Him as their King. And here we are, 6 a.m. Friday, less than six short days later, the chief priests and the leaders, the officers are gathered together and they're not crying out, Hosanna. They're not crying out, Son of David. They're crying out, crucify me. 
not even just a week, consider the last 12 hours of our Lord. Between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. Friday, 9 p.m. Thursday and 6 a.m. Friday, our Lord has already suffered so greatly. He had His last meal with the disciples. His heart was broken because He he knew that Judas would betray Him. But not just Judas, He knew and prophesied that each one of them would deny Him and desert Him at His most trying hour. He went to Gethsemane and called out to the Father in, in great distress, so much so that His sweats were like drops of blood falling to the ground. He endured a physical beating before Caiaphas during the first Jewish trial. After his arrest, he was forced to walk more than two miles to and fro from the various trial sites. And John tells us that it is about the sixth hour, Roman time, so it is 6 a.m. around this time. Our Lord experienced physical torture. He was flogged by the Roman soldiers. We often think that Jesus bore our sins only when He died. We must realize that He bore our sins in His pain and sufferings as well. While He was being beaten by the Roman soldiers, being flogged, being struck, spat upon, having a crown of thorns thrust upon His head, He was bearing our sins. Excruciating pain as He was hanging on the cross, He was bearing our sins. And when He died, He died for our sins. Isaiah 53.5 He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, His stripes, His pain we are healed. His sufferings did not just begin on the cross. It began with all of the punches, all of the lashes upon His back, upon His side, all of the punishment He suffered prior to the cross counts for His sufferings. Verse 1 tells us that He was flogged, scourged, New Testament readers understood this term. It was a technical term that was reserved for those who were to be executed on the cross. It was a hideous torture. It was such a horrible torture that no Roman citizen, no matter how great his crime, was ever allowed to undergo scourging. It was forbidden for a Roman citizen. This was done before a man was crucified, done to inflict greater suffering, to add to the horrors of the crucifixion, as if being being crucified was not enough. They um, prepared him, prepared that man by flogging him. The Roman scourge consisted of a short wooden handle to which several strips of leather were attached. The ends were equipped with pieces of lead, brass, or sharply pointed bits of bone. The lashes were laid upon the victim's back as he was bared and bent over a wooden stool so that his back would be stretched forth to inflict 
the greatest amount of suffering and pain. The body was torn and lacerated to such an extent that deep-seated veins and arteries, sometimes even entrails and inner organs were exposed. The Jews limited the number of blows, 40 minus 1. Romans, there was no limit. There was no legal guideline limit to how many lashes were to be given. It was that number was given to those who would inflict the pain, number as they saw fit. Their only guideline was not to kill the victim because the victim is to die on the cross, not before. Nonetheless, uh, Josephus and other historians report cases of flagellation where victims died while still bound to the post. Many authors called it half-death and so because they died so shortly thereafter, if not by the flogging itself. The Gospels do not describe in detail the flogging. The Gospel of John is just verse 1. Handed over to me, flogged. Why? Because New Testament writers understood this term. But in our culture, it's so foreign to us. And we live in a very um, pain-averse world where death is you know, sanit- so sanitized where we don't even see death up close and personal. When someone dies, a member of our family, a member of our friends is carted off to the hospital and someone else does the work of preparing the body. Next time we see the body, the body is clean, cleansed, I mean, you know, nice suit, right? nice dress, makeup on, looks, looks, looks great, looks fine. That's how we experience death. Well, New Testament people, they, they saw death all around them. And for them, flogging was a common sight. So they didn't need John to describe in detail what this punishment was, was like. But for us, there is um, this information is somewhat necessary to understand what Christ endured. After their flogging, verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, verse 2, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. An accurate Greek translation of verse 3 is, they kept on saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They kept on punching him with their hands. Matthew's Gospel, they kept on spitting on him to just offend him, to insult him all the more. The flogging was followed by mock coronation, mock salutation in the courtyard of the Praetorium. They go beyond their given orders and decide to further punish Jesus. They decide to make a public sport of their prisoner, have some fun at his expense. They say to one another, he is a king. He needs a crown. He's the king of the Jews. Therefore, let's get these thorns and make a crown of thorns and thrust it on his head. With fiendish cruelty, the soldiers press down this crown upon his head, causing rivulets of blood to run down his face, neck and body. They were not satisfied. That was not enough. They also wanted to mock him The crown of thorns satisfied both ambitions, physical pain and personal insult. That was not enough. They put a 
uh, a robe, a purple robe that was uh, thrown away, put it on him, and they mockingly knelt in front of him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The courtyard is filled with laughter, with shouts, with soldiers urging each other on. In the silent moments between the laughter, you can hear the moanings of the prisoner. And yet, we see the meekness of our Lord, His gentleness, His silence and mission to the Father because He does not retaliate. He does not threaten. See the beauty of our Lord, His dignity, His courage, His valor. He refuses to acknowledge their power or authority. He doesn't cower to their threats. He doesn't act out of fear. He, with the joy set before Him, endured this pain from the hands of sinners. It is an unbelievable scene of human evil, depravity of the human heart. I mean, they don't have anything against Him. They don't even know Him. They heard repeatedly Pilate say, this man is innocent. I find no guilt in him. He is not guilty of any of the charges levied against him. And yet, their hearts are just full of evil towards our Lord. He endured it all. He knew this was what he was committing to as he went to the cross. He had prophesied it in Matthew 20, verse 17. Son of man will be betrayed. They will condemn him to death. They will turn him over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be flogged. And he will be crucified. Old Testament prophets prophesied about this suffering Messiah. This promised one who will come and will reign by His suffering, through His suffering, and in His suffering. Psalm 69, 19 and 20, a prophetic text pointing to the coming Messiah. I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. Isaiah 50, verse 6 and 7, I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, but the Sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. I will not be put to shame. And the passage that we read in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. He was oppressed and afflicted. Verses 1, 2, and 3 Describe the physical torture of our Lord. Verses 4 through 8, we see the suffering Savior presented before the world. Suffering Savior before the world. Pilate went out again, verse 4, and said to them, See, I am bringing him out, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Again and again, the gospel writer here wants to record the words of Pilate. Why? 
Because Pilate's conclusion is he is innocent. He is not guilty. Remember Matthew 27, the centurion, the, Roman, the, the man in charge of the Roman guard that flogged him, that crucified him, after he saw the manner of death of Christ on the cross, what was his conclusion? Truly, this was the Son of God. Luke 23, 47 records, he said, Surely this man was innocent. Remember the two robbers that were crucified next to him? One robber said, We are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. We are being crucified because we are criminals. But this man has done nothing wrong. The conclusion of even our Lord's worst enemies is that he has done nothing wrong. Pilate understood this. That's what he believed. He knew that to be true. And so Pilate scores Jesus, had him flogged, so that he might somehow be able to release him and keep him from being crucified. Look at verse 4 again. I am bringing him out so that you may know I find no guilt in him. This was a clear uh, process established by the Roman government on crucifixion. Before the crucifixion, there was this scourging. It was called preparation for crucifixion. That was a scourging. But Pilate's plan is this. He is innocent. He is not guilty. And Luke 23.16, I will punish him and then release him. So that was his plan. Verse Verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look at his marks of scourging. Look at the crown of thorns. Look at how he's been insulted, reduced. Reduced to a mockery. Here he stands covered with gashes, blood and saliva streaking down his face. His appearance has been transformed into a cruel disfigurement. He is a ghastly figure. His body is scorched. His face is pierced with thorns. He is meek and patient. Look, have pity upon Him. Have some sympathy. He tries to work on the sympathy of the people. He exposes to their view a pathetic spectacle. And He is saying, has He not suffered enough? Is it necessary to inflict more punishment upon him? Does he look like a dangerous rebel to you? What has he done to deserve crucifixion? Is this punishment not enough? But their response is one without any sympathy or compassion. When the chief priest, verse 6 And the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Now this is 6 a.m. The mass of people who welcomed Jesus on Palm Sunday, they're asleep. They have no idea this conspiracy was afoot. They have no idea these crooked trials are being taken place. The Jewish leaders, afraid of losing their power and their position, at this shoddy trial done in the middle of the night, early in the morning, gather a mob together who will follow their lead. And when they see Jesus and they see Pilate trying to release Jesus, 
and keep him from being crucified, they yell out, they cry out, Crucify him! Crucify him! These terrible words are yelled until they become a monotonous, monstrous refrain. An ominous chant for them is suffering is not enough. They demand that he die and die by the cross. Pilate said to him, said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. Take him yourselves, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate knew that they had no authority. But Pilate was, would not be moved by just a mob asking for his life. The Jews answered him, verse 7, We have a law, according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. This is important. I believe this is one of the two arguments of the chief priest that convinced Pilate to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. They cried out, He has made Himself the Son of God. You know, Pilate, in his experience with the Jewish uh, leaders, he understood, if, if he understood one thing, it was that they didn't tolerate false gods. When he first came into power over Judea, and when he was reigning in Jerusalem, one of the first things he did was enter Herod's temple with the Roman flags. And the Roman flags, there were emblems of Caesar. There was the image of Caesar on the flags when he arrived for the first time. A revolt broke out. The Jews became enraged at idolatry being introduced into their temple and they started to revolt and riot. And Pilate said, I will not remove the Roman flag from Roman territory any man who defies this order shall be executed and all the Jewish leaders bared their necks. Execute us. We are willing to die because we will not allow quote-unquote idolatry to take place in the temple, temple of God. He retreated and removed the flags. Another time, the soldiers brought their Roman shields with the inscription of Caesar's image in the shields. And the same thing happened. All of this went back to Tiberius. And Tiberius said, Pilate, our, our governing rule is Pax Romana. Let them practice their religion. Do not provoke them with these religious confrontations. Keep peace. Back down from them. So each time, Pilate backed down. This is exactly where Pilate had blown it twice before, the issue of idolatry, the issue of false gods, and this is their twisted accusation. The Jewish leaders first accused him of destroying, of trying or threatening to destroy the temple. That didn't stick. The second accusation was that he was an evildoer. That didn't stick. That he was perverting the nation. Or that he was forbidding tribute to Caesar. That he was stirring up the people. That he was a political revolutionary. They brought witnesses in and the witnesses couldn't corroborate their story, get their facts right. None of their accusations stuck. They reached for this one. He claimed to be the Son of God. He is a false God. And they're saying, you know what happens when you don't get rid of false gods for us? Just like the first two times Pilate 
we will tell Tiberius, we will not allow this to happen. When Pilate heard the statement, verse 8, he was even more afraid. Up to this point, he was afraid. But when, they, when he saw the resolve of the chief priests, that they will not let this man go, that they were committed to crucifying him. And Pilate got a message from his wife about a terrible dream that she had. And she implored him to have nothing to do with this man. And to hear that this man claimed to be the Son of God caused him a seismos, earthquake, trembling in his soul, phobos, fear in his heart. So he goes back to his headquarters, verse 9, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? Where are you from? Questions him again, and here we see the silence of Christ. Pontius Pilate gives him a direct question. Jesus gave him no answer. I mean, can you imagine the impact of his silence? He didn't say a word. I think there's just two reasons why he didn't, re- didn't respond to Pilate here. Isaiah 53, 7 says, As a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In a sense, he, was, he knew he was fulfilling prophecy. He, he wasn't trying to defend himself, trying to appeal to Pilate to set him free from the cross. His resolve was set. He was fully submitted to the cross. So he was silent. The second reason he was silent, I believe, was because he knew Pilate's heart. He knew that Pilate heart will be unmoved by anything that he had said he will say that he was not asking out of faith he was not asking to believe in Christ he was asking just to protect himself for self-preservation I mean there's a it's timely for us to pause here for a moment and to consider um, God's silence now God speaks to us through his word And as we proclaim God's word through preaching, God is speaking. But if you continue to close your heart towards God's word, when you can continue to live for sin and refuse to repent, refuse to humble yourself and submit to his will, just like Pilate, there comes a point where God will be silent. God will stop speaking to you. You will hear God's word. It will have no effect. It will be not powerful. You won't understand it. There will be a lack of discernment, a lack of insight, a lack of uh, holding true to the word of God. And it will seem to you that God is not speaking to you and that God is silent. It is a form of God's judgment, God's punishment, We've endured this as children. When our parents yelled at us, we knew that was stage one of their anger. But their final stage of anger is when they stopped talking to us. 
when they were so angry that it was silent. Then we knew we were in trouble. Pilate asked Jesus, where are you from? Jesus would not answer him or not speak to him. So look at, look at verse 10. Oh, the pride of Pilate. You will not speak to me? This doesn't happen to Pilate. He's the governor, the king of Judea. Whoever he addresses, whoever he questions, answers him immediately. Here is this prisoner, torn to shreds by the flogging. He asks him a simple question. Jesus refuses to answer. You will not speak to me? It's an expression of a man filled with pride. Not accustomed to be met with silence like this. He endeavors therefore to address the fears of Jesus. To appeal to him by reminding him of his supposed authority. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him. You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. Pilate, you have no authority. And any authority you have is because of my Father who has granted it onto you. It's just like Pharaoh, what Moses said in Exodus 9, 16, when God spoke through Moses, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh. I have given you power. Why? To display my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Acts 2.23, that's what Peter said. Peter said Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. To the definite foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28 God had predestined this to take place. Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Our Lord is saying, you're not the one with authority. It is the Father. And I am fully submitted to His authority to the cross. This tells us that the Jews and the Romans killed Christ. It is also true that we murdered Christ by our sins. But most significantly, the Bible tells us that it was God the Father who crucified Christ. Who put Christ on the cross? Ultimately, it was God. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God the Father gave Him, not just in His incarnation, but delivered Him up on the cross. Isaiah 53.10 It was Yahweh's will to crush Him. It was Yahweh's will to cause Him to suffer. It was Yahweh's will that makes His life a guilt offering. It was God who inflicted this cruel punishment, this cruel death. Our Lord's death was initiated and completed by God. God was in total control. 
He used these sinful men for His plan of redemption. Although, verse 11, Christ continues, Though God is the one who is in authority, the means of His authority, means of His plan being executed is through sinful men, and these sinful men are responsible for their sins. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There is a degree of sin. Pilate, you are guilty, for you are going against your conscience. You are going against what you know to be true. You do not know who I am. You do not know the law of, of the Old Testament. Yet you are still violating your own conscience, the law within your heart. Therefore, you are guilty. But Caiaphas, these chief priests who are still yelling, Crucify me, crucify him. The religious leaders of Israel, they're guilty of a greater sin because they're going against what they know to be true from the scriptures. They know the law. They know that I am the promised one and yet they're sinning against God. Therefore, they're guilty of a greater sin. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So the chief priests, I think uh, they're they are understanding Pilate's heart. They're understanding um, Pilate's fear and what motivates this man. The way to persuade Pilate is not to talk about Jewish law. It's not to talk about his threat as an insurrectionist. Pilate is not threatened by this man. The way to move Pilate is not through some personal uh, persuasion. It's through talk about his fears. And he's afraid of going against Caesar, going against Tiberius. And so they present this. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. This man makes himself a king. He opposes Caesar. And if you do not crucify him, then you're against Rome. We will make sure Tiberius hears about this if you will not crucify this man. Verse 14. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It is Friday morning. It was about the sixth hour. So at 6 a.m. Roman time, in Matthew it says 12th hour, he cried out, darkness covered the land, that's Jewish time, it's 12 noon. So our Lord is delivered to be crucified around 6 a.m., John says. 9 a.m., Matthew's Gospel tells us he is crucified. From 9 to 12 in the afternoon, our Lord is anguishing on the cross. And 12 to 3 are his final hours where darkness covers the land. It is at this time, Verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. In a way, they were right. Siding in themselves with the world against God. We have no king but, this, but the king of the world. So here we are. The moment for which the entire history of redemption has been waiting has now arrived. Pilate has made up his mind to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them. 
to be crucified. Three closing thoughts. Three uh, closing applications, if you will. First of all, just the thought of this truth that God is sovereign in the midst of suffering and evil. Here is the greatest evil committed by man. And our Lord tells us, God is in control. We ask that question oftentimes during uh, man-made and natural tragedies. I, I sympathize with this woman. I'm not you know, saying anything against her directly, but what she, her mindset is totally wrong. She said, you know, she's a widow. Her, she lost her husband in 9-11. He was working at one of the Twin Towers uh, in New York. She said, God of my childhood died on September 11, 2001. If God is all-powerful, He would have done something to save my husband. So God is not, either God is not good or God is not powerful. So we see, that is indeed childish faith. That is not childlike faith. It is childish faith. She's saying, God didn't save my husband. So God is not all powerful. God is not sovereign. God is not in control. God didn't intervene. The Bible says no. He is sovereign. He is in control. His will will be done and has been done. And even in the greatest man-made tragedy in the history of the world, God was completely sovereign. What is the reason then for, what is the meaning, what is the reason for these natural and man-made disasters? Disasters that break our hearts, that humble us. In Hurricane Katrina where thousands died in our country. The tsunami in Southeast Asia where tens of thousands of people, men, women and children died. Or about man-made tragedies. There was an incident this past weekend in the garment district of downtown L.A., if you know about it, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, I mean, it's just a father killing two of his own children. How do we explain? Is God in control? Where is God when such things happen in the world? When such evil occurs in the world? Luke 13, Christ said, there were these Galileans who suffered by drinking um, pig's blood. And so they were, uh, they were uh, considered abominable in the sight of God, permanently defiled before, before God. Or there were these um, Jews, 18 of them, who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, a natural disaster. He uses these... Uh, instances of man-made and natural disasters and he says what you need to know is not is God sovereign is God in control yes God is in control the question for you is repent they were not worse sinners as you they were equally sinful the message that God gives through these tragedies is for you to repent so even in Christ's death 
the message to you is to repent and trust in Christ. Second uh, closing thought, second application is that Jesus suffered for us so that He might be an example for us that we might follow in His steps. That we might suffer for righteousness. Suffer for righteousness. Remember last week we studied how the opposite of faith is fear. That when we want to walk by faith, what wages war against our faith is fear. If I share the gospel to my parents, if I preach the gospel to my friends, if I share the gospel to these strangers, what will happen? All these fears rise up. We want to share the gospel. We want to obey the scriptures and do what is right. What oftentimes hinders us from doing what is right? It's fear. Where our Lord, it wasn't, He wasn't risking by going to Jerusalem. He knew by going to Jerusalem, He will be flogged. He would be tortured. And He would die on the cross. There was no question. But what drove his heart was not fear, unlike the chief priests, Jewish people, Pontius Pilate, what drove his heart was obeying the Father. His faith in the Father, trusting in God that he would not be put to shame. And so Christ has set that example for us that we should do likewise. I would like to read the whole chapter, maybe two chapters, but maybe read it this week. First Peter two, thirteen, all the way to chapter four and the verse six. Peter's whole theme here is suffering for righteousness sake. That we ought to do what's right. And even if it means suffering, even if it means the government torturing you, persecuting you, you must do what is right. And he starts by saying, verse 13, chapter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even Nero himself. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to death, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Talks about slaves. Be subject to your masters. When you are beaten, be beaten for doing what is right. And then 1 Peter 2, 21-25 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you and I might follow in His steps. He committed no sin neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled He did not revile in return. When He suffered He did not threaten but continued to entrust Himself to God who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And He just continues about wives submitting to husbands, about those submitting to their masters, earthly masters, to governments, suffering for righteousness, because that was the example of our Lord. May we faithfully follow our Lord's example, driven by faith, not by fear.
and final thought, final closing application is this. Jesus died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. Jesus died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. This is from John Piper. He says, the cross marks how we are to live. He died so that we will be glorified, but not on earth, but in His kingdom, in the future. Our responsibility now is to carry the cross, deny ourselves, and follow cross every day. The pleasures and joys are coming. Now some are already here. We have the spiritual pleasures, the spiritual joys of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the fellowship of the saints. But the true, full glory is still over the horizon. Now we are too, like the writer of Hebrews says to us, go with him outside the camp, enduring the reproach that he received. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. In other words, our glory is not on earth. Our glory is in heaven. We are to lose our lives that we might save it. We are to carry our cross, deny ourselves and follow Him. The great tragedy of modern Christianity is that the cross is relegated to the past. So Piper said this. Practically, what it means is that Jesus was soaked in blood so that I can soak in a jacuzzi. Bigger the top, the more we honor the cross. So goes the prosperity gospel. Our mindset is, cross. Jesus died on the cross, therefore we can soak it in. We can enjoy life. We can live for ourselves and enjoy Christianity, American style, and enjoy the benefits of the cross. That is false theology, false practice. The cross is not a mere event in history. It is how Christians live a daily practice. I'll conclude with Piper's quote. The Christian life is a life on the cross. A life of suffering. Life of shame. The cross is not merely a past place of substitution. It is a present place of daily execution. The execution of pride. The execution of boasting in men. The execution of self-reliance. Execution of the love of money, love of status, and love of praise of man. As we have looked at the sufferings of Christ, we need to ask ourselves, are you suffering for Christ? Have you suffered for the Lord? Are you following in His steps? Or are you just enjoying Christianity while you are not following Christ? You are not loving Him. You are not cherishing Him. You are not carrying the cross. 
and you're not suffering with Him, experiencing the fellowship of suffering with Him. Let's pray. close your eyes and bow your heads. I know that it is such a different world, John 19, for me to go to read these words, to contemplate these truths. My heart is far too shallow. The world I live in is far too fleshly and secular for me to grasp the profundity, the depth of the truths that we are studying together. But nonetheless, this is the real world. This is the truth. Would you humble your hearts this morning and consider our Lord's sacrifice, His sufferings, His pain, how He suffered for our sins and died for our souls that we might be saved. Would you consider if you are walking to Calvary or if you're walking to glorify yourself in the name of Christ, but in the name of Christ, and just in profession but not in reality? Would you consider if you're denying yourself and suffering for the Lord? Father, when the baptizer said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I believe by the eyes of faith he saw into the future and saw the Lamb that was slain to take away our sins. We see the Lamb of God brutalized, tortured, slain, we have fully submitted with joy unto you. And our hearts are broken within us. Oh Lord, in so many ways, open shame belongs to us because of your suffering and death. And yet, while we loudly profess to be followers of Christ, we we live in discomfort. We live in glory of the world. We live in we're soaking in just the pleasures of this world rather than following Christ in His sufferings. Oh God, may. We see the cross of Christ fully and clearly, not just an historical event in the past that provides for our salvation. May we see the cross as a daily call upon us 
to live a life in a manner worthy of the cross, to live a life in a certain way because of the cross, living a life of denial, of suffering, of persecution, of being separated from this world because we are seeking to live for you. May we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.